I'm Ros Taylor. Welcome to The Bunker. If you've been to arts venues in London, chances are you've seen the name Sackler on the wall somewhere. You may have ridden up the Sackler escalator at Tate Modern or walked on the Sackler crossing at Kew Gardens. The family has given money to Oxford University, Imperial College London, the Louvre, the National Theatre, the Old Vic. The list is too long to recite in full here. And you may have assumed that the Sacklers were simply very generous philanthropists. But as Patrick Radden Keefe, a staff writer at The New Yorker, has uncovered, the story of where all the money came from is a great deal more complicated than that. The Sacklers are the family behind OxyContin, the drug which precipitated America's opioid crisis, an epidemic that has killed about half a million people, according to the best estimate we have so far. For context, about 581,000 people have died of COVID in the US so far. Patrick, welcome to The Bunker. Thanks for having me. Your new book about the Sackler family, it's an epic piece of work, and it goes back over a century to the birth of Arthur Sackler, who was the patriarch, if you like, of the family. You explain how Arthur's motivations back then seemed quite noble. How did he and his brothers get involved in the pharmaceutical industry? So originally there were three Sackler brothers, Arthur, and then his brothers Mortimer and Raymond. And they they lived what what in some ways was a, a kind of archetypal American story. They were the children of immigrants who'd come over from Europe. They grew up in Brooklyn during the Great Depression. And their parents very much wanted them to be physicians, to be doctors. So they did. Uh, all three brothers became doctors, though the younger two actually couldn't go to medical school in, in the U.S. They ended up uh, going to Scotland for medical school because they had, they had been frozen out by anti-Jewish quotas in U.S. medical schools. And they became psychiatrists, all three of them, and became very convinced that drugs were the future, that there were all kinds of human ailments that might one day be cured with a pill. And I think there was a lot of idealism in this, but also some entrepreneurialism. And so Arthur Sackler, the oldest of the brothers, goes into medical advertising in the 1950s, the advertising of pharmaceuticals, and he becomes very, very successful doing that. And he ends up setting up his younger brothers in business with their own pharma company, uh, this company, which at the time was called Purdue Frederick. And he was quick to realize how much prescribing power family doctors have in America, wasn't he? And that was one of the early secrets of his uh, success. Yeah, that's right. He had this, Arthur was an amazing protean figure. One of the big choices I made in writing Empire of Pain was to devote really the first third of the book to him, even though he died before the introduction of OxyContin. Not just because I thought he was a fascinating character, but because I think that in his life, you get so many of the pieces of what comes next, that he kind of creates the world in which OxyContin could do what it did. But Arthur goes into pharmaceutical advertising at a time when it wasn't a very creative field. And part of what he did was he sort of imported some of the the gloss and the pizzazz associated with advertising you know, swimwear or automobiles or cigarettes at the time kind of brings that into the pharmaceutical industry. And, and one of his great revelations was that it really isn't the consumer that you need to sell so much as the physician, that if you can target your messages to family doctors, they write the prescriptions. And so uh, that is the way you will create blockbuster drugs. And he proceeds to do just that with a great many drugs, but most notably in the 1960s with Valium, Arthur Sackler 
designed the marketing for Valium, which at the time, uh, you know, was this was this tranquilizer. It turns out it's it's quite addictive, but at the time it was it was the most successful drug in the history of the pharmaceutical industry. So when did OxyContin come along, and what made it different from previous morphine drugs? So OxyContin comes along in the 1990s. There had been an earlier drug that the Sacklers and their company Purdue Pharma had sold which was called MS Content. That was actually developed in the UK. It was developed in Cambridge at a company, a subsidiary company that they owned called Knapp Laboratories, which is still there. They developed this drug, which was a morphine pill. And it was very successful for cancer patients and people in, in quite severe pain. And eventually the patent on that drug, which gave them the right to sell it exclusively, was running out. And they devised a new drug, which would sort of take its place. This was OxyContin. And so the idea was, Rather than morphine, you would have another opioid, a very powerful opioid called oxycodone, and a time-release seal on the pills. So the idea is you could take a massive dose every 12 hours, and it would slowly filter out into your bloodstream. And there were two big things that they did that were novel at the time. The first was to say, we don't want to market this just to cancer patients. We want a much bigger market. We want people not just suffering from severe pain, but even just moderate pain. And the second was to claim that the drug was not addictive. And that wasn't true, was it? It wasn't true. It was a kind of conjecture at the time with no real solid scientific basis. They, they believed that because of that slow-release coating on the pills, that would mean that people wouldn't experience the kind of the euphoric high or the low as the drug uh, kind of leaves your, leaves your system. Uh, that turned out not to be true, but it was a claim that they made again and again. They when they were marketing the drug, and again, remember, trying to get to a, a much bigger population of people than had ever been prescribed these kinds of strong opioids in the past. They're very successful at that. But the way they did it was to have hundreds of sales representatives go out and meet with thousands of doctors. And I've interviewed a bunch of these sales reps. And what they would say is, again, and again, and again, we would tell doctors, it's addictive less than 1% of the time. It's addictive less than 1% of the time. And they had no solid basis for saying that. And one of the reasons that it was addictive was because you could actually crush it up, couldn't you? And that the pill could be abused very easily. How early on did Purdue Pharma, who was behind this, realise that this was going on? Well, this is one of the big intriguing questions that I uh, had to tackle in this book was what did they know and when did they know it? The narrative, the public narrative that has existed for decades that the Sacklers have put forth and that their company, Purdue, have put forth is that they released the drug in 1996, early 96. And four years go by before they're ever aware that there's any sort of a significant problem. And it's only in early 2000 that they realize that people are crushing the drug and abusing it in, in large numbers and, and overdosing and becoming addicted and even dying. Uh, it's really only four years later that they realize there's a big problem. And they've always claimed that they only figured it out when they read stories in the newspaper that the company had to learn that there were problems with its drug from the press. And I should say, when I started out intuitively as a reporter, that seemed off to me because it's generally not the case when you write about a company that has a, a product with a big problem that, that you, the journalist, know more than the company does. And what I was able to establish in the book is that there's a very elaborate paper trail going way back, going you know as far back as 1997, just a year after the drug is released showing that they did know at very high levels of the company that there were major problems. And so what, what you see basically is a cover-up um, and a kind of re-engineering of the timeline in which they claim that they didn't learn anything for four years 
when in fact they knew very early on that there were big problems with this drug. There was a cover-up, but there was also massive negligence, wasn't there, on the part of the regulatory authorities in the US. I mean, there were times when this crisis could have been halted and those were missed. There were so many times, yeah. And I, I should say, I mean, I chose to focus on the Sackler family because I found their story to be particularly fascinating. And I wanted to, to tell a story that was a kind of sweeping multi-generational saga rather than just a book about the opioid crisis per se. Having said that, there's plenty of blame to go around here. As you say, I mean, the, the regulators completely failed, it, I think, at, at multiple different junctures along the line. So, so part of this story is the story of a kind of slow-moving disaster. It takes a long time to get to half a million dead people. It takes a quarter of a century. And there are many moments along the way, some of which I, I, I would characterize as negligence, to use the word you did. There are other instances where I, I, I might be inclined to be a little less generous. I'll give you one example. When Purdue was originally applying for FDA approval to sell the drug inside the United States, uh, and also approval of its marketing, the kinds of claims they could make in the marketing for the drug, the main official at the FDA was a guy named Curtis Wright who was in charge of approving this drug and overseeing the approval process. And he ended up signing off on everything in record time, approving the drug and approving these quite outlandish marketing claims that the company wanted to make uh, for the drug and how safe it was and so forth. And shortly after he'd approved the drug, OxyContin comes out. It's a huge blockbuster. I mean, I think as of today, it's generated $35 billion in revenue. And Curtis Wright starts to think, you know, he might like to leave the government. So he gives up his job in the government, and within a year, he goes and takes a job at Purdue Pharma at three times his government salary. I think his, his first year compensation was about $400,000. After a while, OxyContin reformulated its pills so that it couldn't be crushed and snorted as they'd done before. But that left a lot of addicted people who then couldn't get the same high. So tell us what happened then and how what was originally a prescription opioid problem became much, much bigger and wider. Yeah, exactly. So, so the opioid crisis has had several phases. And the initial phase, which really starts in the 1990s, is a prescription pill problem in which there are these legal pills approved by the FDA that doctors are over-prescribing and there's a black market in the pills and they're getting diverted and lots of people are abusing them and becoming addicted. But slowly, the complexion of the crisis changes, and eventually, many people move to heroin because supply is tougher. Uh, heroin is, you know, it, it turns out cheaper and actually more available, but it is chemically related. It's a chemical cousin of OxyContin, so kind of a natural progression. And then eventually to fentanyl, which is a, a, you know, an, an even more dangerous synthetic alternative. And the Sacklers have, have long said, listen, we don't sell heroin or fentanyl. This is a heroin and fentanyl crisis now. That's what's killing people. But there's this interesting moment in the history where if you look back at the point where the switch to heroin happens, it happens in 2010. And the other big thing that happened in 2010 is that Purdue Pharma reformulated OxyContin. They, they came up with a new formula for the drug that makes it very difficult to crush so people who had been crushing it and snorting it or crushing it and dissolving it in water and then injecting the drug find that it's much more difficult to abuse. And what many of them do is they, they just shift. You know, it's not that you would think that when the company does what seems to be the right thing, reformulating the drug, people would just stop abusing it. And there's evidence that, that abuse of OxyContin was somewhat curtailed. I mean, sales 
sales of the, the biggest dose of OxyContin at the time immediately dropped 25% nationwide when they did this reformulation, which should tell you about how many people were abusing it before. But instead, you have this captive population of people who are already hooked, and many of them ended up just moving on to heroin. One of the unusual things about this crisis is that Black Americans didn't suffer so much from the prescription opioid crisis as white Americans did. Why is that? This is a fascinating little side note in this story and something that I, I wondered about. I mean, the opioid crisis initially in the, in the early going, in the late 1990s and the early aughts, was often thought of as a white working class rural phenomenon. Uh, OxyContin was originally known as hillbilly heroin on the street. That was the nickname. And there were these communities in Appalachia and in rural Maine where the drugs started being abused. By 2021, the crisis has really spread to every corner of the country. There's no demographic that's completely immune to it. But there is this oddity, which is that the African-American community has not felt the impact of this crisis uh, as severely as some other groups. And people looking into this have concluded that there's this fascinating, somewhat paradoxical answer, which is that doctors, when they meet with African-American patients who complain about pain, are often less sympathetic and less inclined to treat that pain aggressively, more inclined to say, you should just grin and bear it. And of course, there's a kind of corresponding issue, which is that some of this, uh, the dynamics here turn on, you know, a physician prescribing these quite potent abuse, you know, drugs that, that, are, that are often prone to abuse, and that there's a distrust that doc, many doctors show in terms of their kind of willingness to prescribe to African-Americans pills that might be abused, a sense that, that they might be more prone to abuse them. And these two phenomena, which are, which are both really expressive of cultural and institutional racism, end up creating a kind of safe harbor for the African-American community because uh, Black Americans have been prescribed these drugs less aggressively than other groups. There's a, a corresponding sense in which they've had to suffer uh, fewer of the consequences of, of the opioid crisis. Only in 2007 did they plead guilty in court. And then it was the business, wasn't it? Purdue, uh, Purdue Frederick, actually, and not Purdue Farmer, and not the Sacklers themselves, who actually pleaded guilty. And when the family were brought to court personally in 2019, they actually managed to avoid too much penalty by bankrupting their business. Is there, are these people unreachable? Is there any way that, do you think, any kind of justice will be will be done? Well, this is part of the story that I wanted to tell was not just the specific chronicle of this family, but a broader story about the ways in which the super elite, the billionaire class, and I think this would probably be as true in the UK as it is in the US, are insulated from the downstream consequences of their own bad decisions. There are many reasons for this, but that the justice system certainly here tends to favor the wealthy and powerful. I think the Sacklers have been very, very clever about enlisting all kinds of politically connected lawyers to make interventions on their behalf and on, on the behalf of their company. But yes, so you get a guilty plea in 2007 in which the company pays a fine which was, on the one hand, a, a large amount of money. It was $600 million. On the other hand, they're making billions of dollars a year at that point. So it, um, it was effectively a speeding ticket. Nobody went to jail. No corporate executives went to jail. 
And then there's another guilty plea just recently in, in late 2020. So this is a company clearly that has not learned from the penalty the first time. And again, in 2020, it was a pretty soft touch. I mean, they, um, you know, the, the company pled guilty to federal crimes, but it, there were no individuals charged or even named. I mean, it's this crazy thing where you read these documents. And I say in the book, it's as if the, the corporation were a driverless car, as if it's acting autonomously. But I'm afraid to say that that is very much the way justice goes here. And as for the Sacklers, they've not been criminally charged with anything. They did pay a $220 million fine to settle some civil charges against some members of the family who were on the company's board and really kind of running the show for a time. What they did was between these two guilty pleas, they started pulling huge amounts of money out of the business. We know that they took at least $10 billion out of the business during this period of time. And what was happening in the background was that you were getting more and more lawsuits against the company. And so then you end up in this, this crazy situation in which having pulled all the money out of the business, the coffers are almost empty. And the family says, oh, it's too bad about all these lawsuits. The company has no money left. And they kick it into bankruptcy. And so now you have the, this bankruptcy proceeding over what's left of Purdue Pharma. And sitting on the sidelines are the Sacklers with... 10 plus billion dollars that they took out of the company before it went into bankruptcy. And they seem quite well insulated from legal repercussions. So I should say, I don't think that there will be no consequences. I think there's been a really significant reputational consequence for the family. And I think that for years, they could kind of run away from the connection between, you know, the philanthropic dynasty that we all know from going to the British Museum or the Tate and the, the rather sordid origins of this fortune. I don't think they can do that anymore. I think that the truth has caught up with them, but I don't know that justice ever will. This is also a story about the medical profession generally, isn't it? Because the Sacklers are, are you know, usually doctors, but in a wider sense, when I was reading this book, I kept coming across doctors doing seriously bad things, sometimes outright corrupt things, and sometimes irresponsible for things like pill mills. But there was a lot of malpractice, to put it lightly. Did it shock you how much there was going on? It did. It did shock me. You know, I come back to Arthur Sackler, who was that original brother uh, who was involved in medical advertising. And this would be true for all three of the original Sackler brothers. They had a notion of doctors as a priest-like profession, as immune from flattery or, or uh, you know, improper influence. Arthur Sackler generally believed that when it came to doctors, there was no such thing as a conflict of interest because the doctor would always have the interests of the patient first in his mind. And in fact, Arthur Sackler, there, there's this kind of paradox, which is that Arthur Sackler would say, you know, doc, you have to understand doctors are so sophisticated that they would never be swayed to change their behavior by anything like medical advertising. And of course, you, you, you hear him say this, and then you realize he owned and ran a medical advertising firm. So there's, to me, it's this contrast between the social role of physicians that we have constructed, where you go to your doctor, and I'm guilty of this myself, you know, you go to your physician, and you say, here are my symptoms. And they say, well, this is what it looks like it is. And here's what you should take. And there's a tendency to want to put yourself in their hands. And yes, I was shocked again, and again, and again, as I was researching the book, by, you know, on the one hand, instances of outright corruption and criminality. There are many, many doctors in this story who end up in jail, and I think rightly so. But on the other hand, and this is the kind of more insidious and I think worrisome phenomenon, 
just by the many, many subtle ways in which industry has worked out how to influence doctors. So I'll give you just one example. Talking to doctor friends when I was working on the book, I would say, oh my goodness, the kind of pressure that these pharma companies put on you, all these blandishments and these inducements. And they would say, oh, come on. I mean, I know that they go to these great lengths to to do this stuff. And, and maybe there's a weekend retreat in Florida that we all go on to have some kind of pain education seminars, or maybe they take me out to a steak dinner, but I would never be influenced by that sort of thing in my prescribing. I learned as I was doing the book that Purdue Pharma some years would spend $9 million a year just buying food for doctors, just food, and which is a lot of steak dinners. And they were very, very punctilious about looking at the return on investment, you know, with each individual meal, each individual doctor, how do their prescribing habits change? And they know all that down to the prescription. Uh, so you better believe they wouldn't be spending $9 million a year if they didn't think it was working. And they were expert lobbyists, were they? Weren't they? Because one of the things they did was to argue when people talked about pulling OxyContin, oh, that can't happen. That mustn't happen because there are lots of people in chronic pain who will suffer enormously if it's taken away. Yeah, this is one of the most pernicious aspects of this whole story is that there's another narrative here, which is that in the 1980s and 90s, you get this reappraisal of the way we treat pain. And this actually, it actually, you know, it happened in, in the UK at the same time as in the US, where there was a sense that we had, that the, the medical establishment had been a little too cavalier about pain, wasn't taking it seriously, wasn't treating it aggressively enough. And that happens to dovetail with, you know, drugs like OxyContin and the big push to have more painkiller prescribing. And so what happens is that you see the pendulum kind of swing way out to one extreme where there's suddenly overprescribing. There's a, I think, very cynical move by Purdue, and they were hardly alone. This was true of other pharma companies as well, and their lobbyists to say, you know, there's this, there's this community of pain patients, and really we are their advocates, and we, we are out here fighting for them. And I have all these internal emails where they, they talk in a very explicit way. Richard Sackler, a second generation Sackler, very involved in the company, says, you know, we need to tie ourselves to that community, make it seem as though their fortunes are inextricable with ours. And so I feel as though these people, these pain patients have been quite cynically used by industry. And every time there was an effort to curb the overprescription of these drugs, the industry would say, oh, but if you do that, you're going to cut off access to these pain patients. And the irony is now you fast forward to 2021, a long time later, and there are pain patients, people suffering from terrible pain who worry that the, the pendulum has swung too far back in the other direction, and it will be difficult for them to access medication for their very severe pain. And so I, I feel as though there's this, there's this sense in which they were kind of cynically exploited on the front end of the crisis. And now they've been sort of marooned at this stage by, by these larger developments. And there is a strange degree of astroturfing going on because I was reading an article about the Sacklers on the Daily Mail website. And do you know what the first 20 comments said? They said, leave them alone. A lot of people are in grave pain. And if it wasn't for OxyContin, <laughs> seriously, yeah, 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 it was extraordinary. Yeah. It was clearly uh, quite deliberate. No, it's amazing. You see these, you'll see these sort of sudden flurries on, on Twitter and so forth. And it's, I mean, it's difficult because on the one hand, I'm, I'm quite, I'm very, I'm very sympathetic with people who are suffering from severe chronic pain. Um, but I, but I think it's, you know, it's, 
very often when you get into those conversations, people will start saying, well, I take the drug responsibly. I take it responsibly. It's these other people, these junkies, these addicts who are irresponsible, and they are uh, depriving me of the access to the drug that I use appropriately. And I, I think that that's a myth. I mean, that, it's a myth that was propagated by Purdue Pharma and, and the Sacklers, but a very enduring one, this sense that, you know, it's not the drugs that are the problem, it's the people who use them. And so we should stigmatize people who abuse the drugs as if they've chosen to do it. When the truth is there are many, many, many people, hundreds of thousands of people who've been prescribed this drug in the care of a doctor, they take it as prescribed, and then suddenly they find that they're in the grip of it and becoming addicted. It's a very similar argument, isn't it, that, to the one that's used by the gun lobby? It's not the guns, it's the people behind them. It's very, very interesting. Could this happen again? Is regulation in America robust enough to resist another OxyContin scandal happening? I worry that it's not. I mean, there's a quote in my book from David Kessler, who was actually the head of the FDA at the time that OxyContin was prescribed. And and he says that the destigmatization of strong opioids, you know, the, the decision that these drugs should be kind of prescribed willy nilly, not just for very severe pain, but also for moderate pain, was one of the great mistakes in modern medicine. I certainly look at the FDA as it relates to opioids. And I don't know that they've that they've really learned their lesson, you know, and you have these, I mentioned earlier, Curtis Wright, the guy who went and took the job. I, I think when we talk about corruption, often there's this sense of corruption being a suitcase full of money being slid across a table. And the reality is often much more subtle and, and more difficult to criminalize, right? So I, I think that there are many, many people who are these government bureaucrats who are in charge of our public health and safety who are making government salaries and they know that someday they're going to leave and they'll go and work for one of these companies or they'll open a consultancy. And so I think there's a kind of inescapable clubbiness, a coziness between the regulators and the industry that they're supposed to be regulating, which I, I think is fundamentally dangerous. And it was, you know, it was dangerous before the opioid crisis. And, and I don't know that I've seen any safeguards that would persuade me that it was otherwise today. What would you like to see happen to all those arts institutions and universities with bits named after the Sackler family? Uh, what would you like them to do, if anything? Well, I think, you know, I, I think about this quite often because there's been quite a bit of activism in this area. I tell the story in the book of Nan Golden, the celebrated photographer, pressuring various art institutions to take down the Sackler name. We've seen some universities start doing it. Tufts University took down the name. NYU took down the name. The Louvre took down the name. The Serpentine Sackler was recently rechristened just the just the old Serpentine again. I'm not an activist, you know. I don't uh, have a kind of particular agenda that I um, that I would push. And I think that these questions for institutions about what does it mean to have a, a legacy gift that you got decades ago? When do you take the name off? What kinds of risks would that create in terms of other donors? I think these are extremely difficult decisions. What I have found in my reporting, though, is that a lot of these institutions, I think, have known for a long time that it stinks, have known that the money is dirty. And we're just sort of hoping that that it wouldn't that nobody would notice, hoping that if they kept their heads down and kept quiet, that there wouldn't be any uh, opprobrium. So I feel as though my function is is to tell the truth and document it as best I can. If there are institutions out there that say, yes, we know all that, we know and acknowledge the, the origins of this fortune, 
but frankly, you know, it's not for us to make judgments about how people make the money that they give us. And we feel as though we can, you know, through, through a kind of transubstantiation, take sordid blood money and, and convert it into a beautiful public good. I think that's an argument an institution could make. But I would love to see them making it with the acknowledgement of the kind of full picture in terms of the information we know now about that name and what it means. And that I haven't really seen yet. Patrick Radden Keefe's new book, Empire of Pain, The Secret History of the Sackler Dynasty, is published by Picador. Patrick, thanks so much for talking to us. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm Ros Taylor, and thanks for listening. Don't forget to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and you can support the show on Patreon too. Search Patreon Bunker Podcasts to find out how. Join us next time for another Bunker Daily. The Bunker Daily was presented by Ros Taylor. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelna Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.